Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Pulling into the home stretch of our Reality Show Part 1 archive presentation, we're pleased to remind you that in just a few weeks, you'll be wading through more new Paranoid Strain content than you can shake a stick at. Or maybe you can shake a stick at it. I suppose that's a question best answered by considering the mass of the stick and your personal upper body fitness, but the point is, we're pumping out Secret Society shows just as quickly as we can, and we'll have the first one ready for your ears in a couple of weeks. Today's presentation, though, is all about odd responses to the inherent strangeness of our reality. Topics include the Mandela Effect, which is definitely not a thing, Time Cube, which is even less of a thing, and then an exploration of the implications of philosophical pessimism on the issue of human consciousness and its evolution. It's a rollicking thrill ride. Our That's Not Canon promotion for this week is for the show Oof! Right in the Childhood which charts the entire history of Disney's animated films, one episode at a time. Not only does your host provide an in-depth analysis of the making of the film and what was transpiring in the world of Walt and his company at the time of the production, she also offers a synopsis of the action through a modern social lens, and the art for each episode is terrific. Check it out. Link is, obviously, in the show notes. Now, let's hear some real weirdness. The Mandela Effect is a phrase people use to describe their own powerful memories that don't seem to match our recorded history. Two things seem to make those memories powerful. One is how certain the individual is that the memory is genuine and correct. The other thing is the consistency of those memories across a wide range of people who otherwise seem to have no connections, personal or geographical. The person you just heard briefly introducing the concept is none other than Fiona Broom, the individual most often credited with identifying this quote-unquote effect. But why is it the Mandela effect? Here's a quick synopsis. The Mandela Effect is named after Nelson Mandela. Released in 1990, he became the first president of South Africa, electively serving only one term before stepping down to focus on fighting HIV AIDS and poverty in 1994. That fight continued until he passed away on December 5th, 2013. But is that what you remember? If you're like many people, you may recall stories of Mandela dying while still in prison in the 1980s, while others believe that the year of his death was 1991. But if that were the case, how could he have become president? This is merely one example of how alternate universes may have collided or even merged with our own. To rephrase this general idea charitably, there are a significant number of people across the world who all remember events, names, and even geographic locations as being different than they actually are. These shared misapprehensions in turn have spawned ideas that the history of the world may be changing retroactively in subtle ways, unbeknownst to the population at large. 
and that these Mandela Effect experiencers' memories are the only record of how the world was before the mysterious forces altered it. Less charitable version? People are clearly misremembering events, both significant and trivial, and all somehow decided that this is super-duper important and evidence of a sinister plot. Man, we love sinister plot accusations. So, it's time to bring on the crazy quotes. Let's start with effect researcher and self-described freedom fighter for truth, Stasha Erickson, and her scholarly work in The Mandela Effect, Everything is Changing. The world is changing, and there is proof that a reality has been manipulated. The most noticeable change to our reality seems to be the blatant manipulation of our history. The Mandela effect itself is a symptom that reality, as we know it, has changed. Not just metaphorically transformed, but physically. What launched our freedom fighter on her important quest? It happened when she realized that her favorite childhood peanut butter's name had inexplicably been altered. It had? Of course not. But that didn't stop her from writing to the company and demanding to know when Jiffy had changed its name to Jif. When they politely replied that the brand had always been Jif and that it seemed most likely she was confusing their product with the popular Jiffy brand of cornbread mix, she reacted as any other sensible adult would and decided this was clear evidence that those Jif bastards were in on the whole plot. I felt that they knew exactly what was going on and therefore they were so quick to respond and defend their story. How many large corporations will reply to an email inquiry within hours? It almost seems as though they had a pre-written response handy for all the Mandela-infected individuals who tried to call them out on this change. While I do not have any proof of this yet, I feel that we will accomplish this task with the publishing of this book. Well, obviously. Other devotees have similarly strong stories. Linda Fittack's cat disappeared, for example which might not seem super relevant, but her two other cats were acting weird and looking at a spot under the dining room table. We'll let her take up this gripping tale here from her screed, The Mandela Effect, Confabulation or Fact. It was not until the next day in the evening that I found him trembling by the dining room table. He had scratches on his nose. He's forgotten the incident now, but I believe that he went through a portal to another universe. The other cats could sense it, which is why they gathered around that one area under the table. I think there was a small opening that he was trying to climb through, which would explain the scratches on his nose. What that other universe was like, we do not know. But whatever it was, it seriously frightened him. You know, it would be just like this show to dismiss this as the blithering nonsense of the deranged. But having just reviewed all the weirdness about what we don't know about reality, I'm still going to make fun of it because it's fucking stupid. It's not just authors of Kindle Unlimited books who are obsessed with this horseshit. Credulous YouTubers are also on the case. And today I'm going to be doing kind of an installment of a Mandela Effect video. I know Shane Dawson is shook. Just kidding, I will never be him. But I found these ones kind of recently and I was very just like taken aback. I am a total believer in the Mandela Effect. I'm not even going to explain it because I'm sure you guys know what it is. And if you don't, you can just like Google it or watch like any other YouTuber. So... I just thought I would share some of these with you guys. Have you ever had a memory of something so strong that you swear it to be true? What happens when hundreds or even thousands of other people share the same memory, only to discover that it never actually happened? Here are the 10 freakiest examples of the Mandela Effect. Somewhere deep in bear country lives the Bernstein Bear family. <laughs> the Bernstein Bear. 
Small bit of news, just in. Parallel universes exist, and we're living in a different one than we did in our childhoods. I don't know if you guys heard, but apparently at some point in the last decade or so, a large number of us got shifted to a parallel universe, and the Berenstein Bears proved that. I'm Gabe Ho-Writer, and do parallel universes exist? Sure. But are some of us actually from a parallel universe and somehow got shifted into this one? That's a much bigger question. Let's find out. This is The Mandela is. Effect, a freaky phenomenon causing the collective misremembering of a fact or event. Tens of thousands of people, or in some cases more, all claim to have a memory of something that never actually occurred. What could cause such a phenomena? Have we crossed into an alternate reality? Nobody knows, but the following examples are some of the most famous going on right now. Okay, so aside from undead South African heroes, peanut butter, and disappearing cats, what other things do people believe have been changed by mysterious nefarious forces? Thankfully, you can visit MandelaEffect.com and find an exhaustive and truly exhausting list. A few random examples. Didn't Curious George have a tail at one time? Weren't the Berenstein Bears originally called the Berenstein Bears? In that famous portrait of Henry VIII, isn't he holding a turkey leg? Didn't Betty White die a long time ago? Didn't the Tiananmen Square tank guy get run over by a tank on TV? Didn't the events of 9-11 actually occur on 9-10? Was New Zealand at one time closer to Australia than it is now? To be clear, the answer to each of the preceding is no. And we think you get the gist, but we have to tack on a personal favorite. Weren't there 51 or 52 U.S. states at one time? Amusingly, many sensible people believe this one arises from the fact that U.S. territories are frequently featured in little boxes surrounding the continental U.S. on maps, along with Alaska and Hawaii. Thus, the additional one or two states that these people have added in their minds. This next may be the best one, though. Once again, compliments of Stasha Erickson. I am currently in the process of editing a chapter regarding the Mandela effects that have arisen in our atmosphere recently. The sun seems to appear artificial in nature. It is almost too bright, like an oversized flashlight of some sort. My God, they got to the sun. Damn you all-powerful conspiracists. As amusing as it is to see people try to turn their faulty memories into a conviction that they alone remember the true timeline, it's still more fun to read and hear their theories about how this state of affairs came into being. If you predicted they'd somehow blame it on quantum mechanics, you win a prize. Is the European Organization of Nuclear Research, or as it's better known, CERN, responsible for the Mandela Effect? It has been a theory put forward by many that are looking for a possible explanation for the many changes they are certain have occurred in their reality. The Large Hadron Collider, or LHC for short, which is operated by CERN is the single largest and debatably the most powerful machine ever created by humanity. The particle accelerator became operational in 2010. In fact, at the time there was widespread fear that the tremendous energy of 7 tera electrovolts, it is also this tremendous amount of energy needed for these experiments that many are theorizing might be corroding the very fabric of our universe and unintentionally creating reality altering side effects such as the Mandela Effect. Some conspiracy theories have gone as far as saying they believe that the physicists at CERN know about the side effects these experiments these are These guys causing. are helping to learn how to observe these multiple dimensions. And if they can, you know, all work together and finally perfect it, and if CERN is doing something with these collisions, perhaps they could see into the spiritual realm. Does this have anything to do with the Mandela Effect? 
you know, and and I'm I'm still curious about that topic. I talked about it a few times. I've went actually back and forth on it. Um, I don't think the Bible's been changed, but um, there are a lot of things that are very strange. Matter of fact, there was just one the other day. I I I could swear Betty White was dead, and apparently she's not dead. Okay, she was on Fox News. Already has the ability to generate power from collisions that is a thousand times greater than the 27-kilometer ring, main ring itself. Now they're going to join both machines, and therefore the power that will be realized from the collisions will be in an order, and I'll put it out here because we can define it later, but they're going to reach what is called 20 peta-electron volts. In my view of physics, and coming from a Christian perspective, and having the glasses, as I call it, the glasses of the Holy Spirit, to give me that discernment. I have seen the occulted or more profanely the satanic side of science, specifically what's going on at CERN. And let's go back to the location of the machine. It's not only on the border of two countries, it's not only 300 feet underground, but it is purposefully located at the ancient Roman and Greek temple site to Apollo, Apollyon, Abaddon, the destroyer. Mm. It is literally sitting over the gates to hell, Unbelievable. to the abyss. And this technology provides the key to the abyss, the turning of that lock and the releasing of the demonic entities trapped within the abyss and goes right to Revelation 9-1. That's the purpose of the machine. Is to open and that gate. certainly 9-11 now is, is associated with destruction. And the Shiva is the goddess of destruction. CERN seems to worship the, the god of destruction or goddess of destruction or Satan. Uh, they, they, there's, if you don't know anything about their connection to Satanism, you, it's almost blatant. It's, all, it's so obvious how much she's, the CERN has got to do with that. And then... Their awareness that they are being at least connected to the Mandela effect is obvious too. There's, there's with zero doubt that they're aware that they are being connected with the Mandela effect. And even a cartoon, you know, the, all this stuff right after they opened in 2008, it makes me wonder if they discovered something because in 2010, you start having like cartoons like Steingate, which when you think of Berenstein Bears or Stein, you know, that the pronunciation can be the same. One of the biggest, I think, for Mandela effects, Steingate is all about this CERN messing with time and realities and all that. That's just amazing. It makes me wonder if they, they accidentally stumbled across this or if they knew they were going to do it. I'm really grateful when I can see something. And you know what? I also pray for people who can't handle it, for people who are just going to destroy their life. I pray that they not see it because I don't want to see their life go down, you know, just go down in flames because they can't handle it. So I think the people Do you hear how they went from worrying about the Large Hadron Collider at CERN causing the Mandela effect and then ended up deciding that said collider is actually opening a portal to hell? Isn't it delicious? God, I love my job. Guess what? There's some internecine fighting between the Mandela wackos and religious wackos. Grab the popcorn. The Mandela effect is a concept associated with Fiona Broom a researcher and paranormal consultant. In other words, 
She is connected to the dark underworld and demonic consultations and communication with the dead. Another form of witchcraft or mind manipulation through dark forces. They themselves show all of the attributes of a person that has allowed witches and warlocks to get into their heads. If they can convince you that these concepts and winds of doctrine deserves your attention, then they have successfully indoctrinated you with the same manipulations that have taken control over their minds. So, God hates Fiona. Great. But it gets better. See, one of the things the Mandela whack jobs think has been changed is the Bible. Back to Stasha Erickson's breathless tone. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? The most commonly spoken prayer at both funerals and Sundays in church is causing an enormous amount of controversy and confusion. When I spoke the Lord's Prayer as a child, I always remember it saying, forgive us our trespasses. Now it says, forgive us our debts. Since when did money or debt have anything to do with forgiveness? We hope you non-Christian straniacs will pardon this brief digression into sectarian vocabulary, but it's true. The word debts is now used in the Lord's Prayer in place of the word trespasses. Wait, did I say in place of? I meant that different denominations use different words, and it's been that way at least since the Catholic Church started saying the Mass in English a few decades ago. Catholic Church goes trespass, but Pop Jesuits Presbyterian has long used the term debts. Also, as an archaic version of the word debts to mean wrongs we have committed against others, Stasha. It's not actually about money. Incidentally, she could have clarified this with a single trip to Wikipedia or even a brief glance at any of the grillions of different Bible-related sites with explanations of the fact. Getting back to the topic, though, fundies are particularly angered by the suggestion that the mysterious, totally explainable effect may have potentially changed something in said Bible. Today I'm going to talk about the Mandela effect. I've been getting a lot of emails and even phone calls from people asking me, please make a video about this. Many of them say that CERN is involved and is actually manipulating time or somehow accessing alternative realities. And that through this, they are able to actually change the way things used to be and even changing the Bible from what it actually used to say. Is this true? And verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. God has a word that's settled. So the settled word, can it be changed? Is the word of God changed if it is settled? Psalms 119.160, we read, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. So thy word is true from the beginning. Well, Psalms 12, 6, and 7 say, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So the word of God says that God's words are settled, true, pure, purified, and preserved. If God's words are settled, true, pure, purified, and preserved, then how can Satan change them? If CERN can change the words of God in the King James Bible, then God's words are not settled, true, pure, purified, and preserved, as we just read. And by the way, forever. So delicious. We're about to move on, but we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that while the Mandela Effect is of course insane, this guy's defense against the accusations by the Mandela Effect believers is even dumber. 
and a textbook example of what the phrase begging the question is actually supposed to mean. To quickly recap his argument, some people say the Mandela effect has changed the Bible. Is that possible? No. How do we know? The Bible, which you'll recall is the thing in question, says it can't be changed. QED. While there are a huge number of textual and historical reasons to contest his claims about the Bible's unchangeability, all we have to note for our example here is that he's using the text whose changeability is in question to confirm that that can't have happened because that potentially changeable text says, in the text, that said text can't be changed. This is literally the textbook, excuse me, definition of begging the question. So the next time some dumb fuck in your office says something like, so this begs the question, where should we go for lunch? You can revel in your silent superiority at his mistake the same way we do. Someone please get this man a date. On the bright side, one of the pro-Mandela authors appears to have re-released his original Kindle Unlimited book in a deluxe edition so that he can explain his later realization that it's much more likely that he and every other believer is simply making way too much out of some pretty commonplace misremembering than it is that the whole of reality is being secretly edited. And that's why we give Jay Wheeler and the deluxe edition of Alternate Memories, The Mandela Effect, our first ever Paranoid Strain Reformed Conspiracist of the Year Award. See you on the red carpet. One final thought on this. What in the name of Flarn makes these people think that should some sort of subtle change propagate throughout the universe, changing the warp and weft of history, that the atoms in their brains would somehow be uniquely immune to said change? A quick mention of two other reality-questioning conspiracist nonsense ideas. The first is the super weird concept, dreamed up on incredibly scanty evidence by some academics over the past few decades, that several centuries were added to the calendar during the Middle Ages. We'll excerpt the excellent Stuff They Don't Want You to Know video series to explain this one. Some researchers think the calendar as we know it is off by as much as three centuries, that somewhere along the line we became victims of phantom time. To these investigators, the years between about 600 to 900 AD never actually happened. Researchers like Arabidilig and Hans Ulrich Niemitz think this modern age may actually be in the 1700s rather than the 21st century. According to these researchers, the evidence is overwhelming. Let's take a closer look. Even considering we might be 300 years in the past, 600 AD was a long, long time ago. As a result, physical evidence is hard to come by. To the advocates of phantom time, this evidence is incongruous, unconvincing, and most likely from a different era. They claim the buildings from 600 to 900 AD don't match their contemporaries. Various prominent historical figures, chief among these being Charlemagne, are said to have been assigned to the wrong time period or made up entirely. The theorists also believe that inefficiencies of dendrochronology, the science of measuring time through tree rings, attributed to this phantom time. To these theorists, the big question isn't if this happened, it's why. Did Otto II conspire to place his reign in the year 1000, a more auspicious time than the 700s? Is Constantine VII's brutal revision of Byzantine history to blame, or could it all be an accident? Most of the world does not believe there's enough evidence to support the phantom time hypothesis. But what if these theorists are right? Have we been fooled? Have we accidentally made up centuries worth of fiction and confused it with fact? Mainstream science refuses to accept the hypothesis, and most scientists dismiss it entirely. Why? Is it a load of paranoid claptrap? Or is there something they don't want you to know? Weird. But not even close to the weirdness of our final entry here. 
It's a name that strikes fear into the hearts of anyone who's hung out in the stranger parts of the internet over the past couple of decades. I give you Time Cube. In online circles, the name Time Cube has become synonymous with incomprehensibility, poor web design, and absurd conspiracy theories. Most people discover it after sarcastic remarks in forums and investigating for themselves, though even after seeing it, the subject remains elusive and confusing. The website is mostly one massive page consisting of aggressive prose detailing a theory, claiming that time is cubic, as well as proclaiming the supreme intellect of its creator while insulting everyone else. Those who attempt to describe the theory for the more befuddled readers often find themselves at a loss. The material on this first recorded page declares in large red lettering, Earth has four simultaneous days within one rotation. Losing three days in each Earth rotation has retarded your mentality to stupid and an education of evil. You do not have the mind or education to envision nature's time cube. The rest of the website is laid out vertically, divided into sections that each use unique formatting. The next section states in all capital letters that, quote, Three equator four corner earth time rotates 96 hours as a simultaneous four day cube. You were taught that the earth has only one equator as if the earth was flat. You were taught ignorance. Creation has two sex poles and four corner races of humans. God is cornered as a queer. This second section is signed as Gene Ray, Cubic. Just beneath this, he attempts to explain his theory with more specificity. Quote, if Earth stood still, it would have midday, midnight, sun up, and sun down as four corners. Each rotation of Earth has four middays, four midnights, four sun ups, and four sun downs. The 16 space times demonstrates cube proof of four full days simultaneously on Earth within one rotation. The academia created one day Greenwich time is bastardly queer and dooms future youth and nature to a hell. Ignorance of four-day harmonic cubic nature indicts humans as unfit to live on this earth. At one point, this concept and its website represented the weirdest scientific-sounding-ish drivel the web had to offer. While its sole progenitor, and the only person who seems ever to have understood what the hell it was about, has died, we fortunately have a recording of lectures he gave to bemused and highly amused students, explaining how he completely reinvented the concept of time. Or something. Damned if we can figure it out. Hello, fellow cubics. You didn't know that you were born a cubic, but you've been taught singularity. This is a, a, a clear plastic cube that represents time. It's got the earth in it, and when the sun shines on one corner, it creates an opposite of midnight. Those are the two majors. And uh, where they join, it creates the two minors of sun up and sundown. The midday. The, Midnight to midday is 24-hour day, sundown is 24-hour day, midnight is a 24-hour day, and sunup is a 24-hour day. And the, uh, the, the midday is like a light race day, sundown ace, and midnight black, sunup Indian. And it's, it's, each one of these rotates to its own separate 24-hour day. That's simple math. How come people can't understand that? That's no big deal. I've got, I get death threats from NASA. They say you're rocking the boat. So people can't handle it. But they can't handle it because they've never been allowed to know it. And the, I've got NASA pictures that shows a ring of molten lava around the equator of a planet. Look at it closely. The top part of the lava is moving in the direction, in one direction. The bottom part is moving in the opposite direction. That's how planets are created. You can even see the, like the Atlantic Ocean, where you got 
part half coming and half of it going. Now, if you, uh, the Earth is not an entity because it has two opposite poles. It rotates in different directions. It cancels out. All humans exist between the two opposites of femininity and masculinity. And that's how we exist, as opposites. As an entity, they cancel out. We don't even exist. The whole universe is, 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 is uh, uh, it's kind of like the, the opposite sexes, the opposite hemisphere. That's, what, that's, that's how all existence is. And you can put, your, uh, put a human head in an animal body, in, in a tiger, and it, that, uh, it has to act like the tiger form. If you put a god in a human form, he's going to have to act like the god. He has a limitation of the, of the figure. And the, uh, the evolution if it's, uh, where would it affect the family? The, you can see the, uh, uh, a, a child, like you can plant a seed and it grow to a tree, but you can't do it with a child. The child has to be born. And so uh, you can't change the genetics on the child just being born. So actually, and Around the final bend here, but after the preceding dipshittery, we wanted to offer another, more reasonable perspective on the idea that all of reality is, in a sense, a conspiracy. In this case, there are no conspirators, though. Just that same elusive sense of what is and what isn't that we've been chasing all episode. together a few loosely related threads here, but trust us, we have a good reason, and we'll reveal it in due time. To pick a place to start, let's briefly discuss the hugely influential horror author H.P. Lovecraft. He is, in his own way, one of the most important popular writers of the 20th century, the creator of such legendary monstrosities as Cthulhu, the Great Sleeper, Yog sothoth and shub Nagorath, the Goat with a Thousand Young. Lovecraft didn't go for teen-slaughtering maniacs or even supernatural monsters of human dimensions. Instead, his work was centered on the horror that could arise from human characters encountering beings far larger, older, and more powerful than mankind. Eldritch monstrosities whose very existence seems to mock any pretense that our kind might make to meaning or importance in the universe. Quoting directly from his Call of Cthulhu, We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, has hitherto harmed us little. But some day, the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying visas of reality and of our frightful position therein, that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Lovecraft, it turns out, was an atheist materialist. And, we should probably note, a very disturbingly racist motherfucker, even for his time. And his concepts of horror arose directly from his presumption of the total indifference of the universe to all human preferences, achievements, or even morality. His stories personified the meaninglessness of the universe that we find ourselves in by creating elder gods, creatures whose presence could drive humans mad, beings who, at most, saw humans as fleas on their backs. But worse, there was always the intimation that this universe, this planet, was meant for them, not for us. So why do we bring up Mr. Scary Racist? 
mostly because in recent years there have been some other interesting explorations of the idea that our investigations of reality and our search for meaning will inevitably lead us to ever more dire realizations about exactly how little rationality, sense, or place for humanity there is in the universe. For example, do you remember season one of True Detective? Sure, the subsequent editions have been hit. Season three. Or miss. Season two. But count us among those who think that the first Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson iteration is one of the apices of our current age of prestige TV. And certainly of all of the memorable things about that remarkable series, the most arresting was the deadpan, flinty-eyed, misanthropic philosophizing that Detective Rust Cole sprinkled throughout eight episodes. Look, I'd consider myself a realist, all right? but in philosophical terms, I'm what's called a pessimist. I think human consciousness is a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. Well, that sounds god-fucking-awful, Rush. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self, this accretion of sensory experience and feeling, programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody. When in fact, everybody's nobody. I think the honorable thing for our species to do is deny our programming. Stop reproducing. Walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal. So, what's the point of getting out of bed in the morning? I tell myself I bear witness. The real answer is that it's obviously my programming. And I like the Constitution for suicide. Show creator Nick Pizzolatto mentioned a number of texts that were an influence on his creation of the season and the perspective of its most memorable character. But one of the biggest influences was a book by Eugene Thacker called In the Dust of This Planet, The Horror of Philosophy, Volume 1. Yes, the Paranoid Strain Orchestra Maniacs have a theme song. Of course. At least one podcast has already made quite a meal of this book and its association with not only True Detective, but also Beyonce and Jay-Z. It's a pretty weird story, and you should check it out on Radiolab. Show notes. The book is an attempt to discuss the concepts behind philosophical pessimism in the context of the genre of horror. That's a pretty finely honed book proposal, no? You'd think so. But there's another book we read for this episode on the very same topic. And... Be Still Our Hearts, that one's by Thomas Ligotti, and it's called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. No, no, I don't think we should sound the justified conspiracy alarm yet, but let's give our authors a chance to lay out their tightly aligned cases. What's the big idea? First, we'll hear from Thacker. The view of cosmic pessimism is a strange mysticism of the world without us, a hermeticism of the abyss, and noumenal occultism. It is a difficult thought of the world as absolutely unhuman and indifferent to the hopes, desires, and struggles of human individuals and groups. Interesting, if kind of a downer. Mr. Ligotti? We want there to be more than that, or to think that there is. This is a tragedy. Consciousness has forced us into the paradoxical position of striving to be unselfconscious of what we are. Hunks of spoiling flesh on disintegrating bones. Another laugh riot. 
But hopefully you can hear the clear echoes of Rust Cole's lines in these excerpts. The general idea behind each book is fundamentally aligned with the fictional detective's view that consciousness, which in this worldview evolved without the mandate or oversight of a benevolent deity, was the worst thing that could have happened to the human species, and is in fact the cause of most of our other problems. Because we have knowledge of our own mortality, as well as what these gents, and to be fair, the entire intellectual history of Maya, as we discussed earlier, would characterize as the illusion of a self. We are constantly damned to lives of overwhelming suffering and spiritual dislocation, which we hide from ourselves through the trappings of a normal life, work, hobbies, family, podcasts, and which we tend to give tentative expression to only through the creation and consumption of works of horror. Fuck me, that's bleak. It sure is, but it's also a conspiracy, if you'll accept Mr. Ligotti's formulation that can't be dismissed out of hand. It doesn't call for a mysterious band of all-powerful sociopaths to rearrange the world in the name of hoarding power and spreading misery. Instead, it's just the idea that as conscious beings, we've been dealt the shittiest possible hand. Of all the universes, we had to exist in the one that would blindly, meaninglessly vomit up self-awareness at the end of an endless trial-and-error process of evolution, but then that would be able to offer no essential meaning or comfort to those conscious beings. Naturally, both of these guys are big fans of Lovecraft, and his elder gods, whose indifference to humanity is one of their most salient traits. Each author also does a great job tracing this strain of philosophical pessimism through literature and film, with both offering a special appreciation of Schopenhauer, the philosopher of pessimism we discussed earlier in our philosophy section. Referring to Schopenhauer as a sort of philosophical fellow traveler with Lovecraft, Thacker notes, Schopenhauer says, We have to challenge the most basic premises of philosophy. We have to entertain the possibility that there is no reason for something existing, or that the split between subject and object is only our name for something equally accidental which we call knowledge, or, an even more difficult thought, that while there may be some order to the self and the cosmos, to the microcosm and macrocosm, it is an order that is absolutely indifferent to our existence, and of which we can only have a negative awareness. And Legati. Here, then, is a signature motif of the pessimistic imagination that Schopenhauer made discernible. Behind the scenes of life, there is something pernicious that makes a nightmare of our world. Plus, L-Dog provides a nice pro-Schopenhauer swipe at the tortured college-age misanthropes poster boy for intense negative philosophy. Although both Schopenhauer and Nietzsche spoke only to an audience of atheists, Schopenhauer erred, from a public relations stance, by not according human beings any special status among the world of things organic and inorganic, or trucking in any meaning to our existence. Meow. The books do, of course, focus on somewhat divergent themes. Thacker's idea is to codify a new approach to horror of, as he puts it, the world without us, the planet, as opposed to the world or the earth, which he labels world for us and world in itself, respectively. Yes, we know this sounds a lot like Kant, but trust us, it's a lot more readable. Thus Lovecraft and his indifferent, enormous ancient horrors definitely fit the bill. But his book has a much broader thesis, asking us to consider the world we inhabit from a fairly uncommon perspective, that of humans complete in consequence. Cosmic pessimism's limit thought is the idea of absolute nothingness, unconsciously represented in many popular media images of nuclear war, natural disasters, global pandemics, and the cataclysmic effects of climate change. Ligotti's effort is focused more on the condition of being human in this indifferent cosmos, and how, in his formulation, most of human activity is an elaborate effort to deceive ourselves about our condition. Non-human occupants of this planet are unaware of death. 
but we are susceptible to startling and dreadful thoughts, and we need some fabulous illusions to take our minds off them. For us, then, life is a confidence trick we must run on ourselves, hoping we do not catch on to any monkey business that would leave us stripped of our defense mechanisms and standing stark naked before the silent, staring void. Certainly our authors find support throughout history for these perspectives, even if more optimistic modes are thicker on the ground. For example, Ligotti quotes letters from Joseph Conrad, most famous as the author of Heart of Darkness, the inspiration for the film Apocalypse Now, and one of the most legendary depictions of human savagery in the absence of the artificial strictures of civilization. In an 1898 letter, Conrad wrote, If only we could get rid of our consciousness. What makes mankind tragic is not that they are victims of nature, it is that they are conscious of it. To be part of the animal kingdom under the conditions of this earth is very well. But as soon as you know of your slavery, the pain, the anger, the strife, the tragedy begins. We can't return to nature since we can't change our place in it. Our refuge is in stupidity. There is no morality, no knowledge, and no hope. There is only the consciousness of ourselves which drives us about a world that is always but a vain and floating appearance. These guys seem like a blast at parties, but it's worth a moment for us to truly consider their perspective and the idea that the world is fundamentally meaningless, that we can't escape our desires, that potentially, as Legati constantly insists, there is only one truly sensible solution for all humans to voluntarily decide to stop reproducing and thus solve the problem of conscious suffering gradually and naturally. Of course, this will never happen, partially, as he points out, because as our civilization manages to assuage more and more of the plagues that caused pain and disease in the past, it becomes ever easier to insist that this is truly the best time in history to have children. If you're hoping to give birth to beings who will not pass their lifetimes in pain and misery, or, as Ligotti puts it in a more pithy and amusingly pessimistic tone, To the regret of pessimists, our primitive ancestors could not see that theirs was not a time in which to produce children. So what to make of this argument? Well, let's take it at face value. We're accidentally conscious beings in an indifferent cosmos. You can think this is miserable and should be stopped as soon as possible through cessation of procreation. In other words, take the rust coal way out. And perhaps in an earlier period of history, this might have made sense. After all, for endless generations, humans were mostly born into grinding, ignorant misery. But from our perspective, things are really looking up. Human lifespan, health, wealth, self-governance, and a bunch of other metrics are on a real positive tear. So accepting the pessimist's argument that it's all contingent, accidental, and meaningless, there's still room for a clear-eyed optimist to say that, these days, in the developed world, new lives are pretty likely to enjoy far more moments of pleasure and sublimity than ever before. Sure, by producing no more lives, you ensure no more suffering but you also ensure no more podcast listeners. And to paraphrase Winston Churchill, Up with that, we will not put. Couple of other items before we head out. First, if you're in agreement with the philosophical pessimists, there is a small but apparently dedicated group you can join. The Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, V-H-E-M-T. Or, with a little pronunciational leisure domain, vehement. These folks' perspective may not be popular, but they offer a completely voluntary, nonviolent option for those who feel like humanity should just call it a day. All they ask is, everyone who's a member should not reproduce, noting that this would solve not only the problem of conscious suffering, but also of environmental degradation mentioned by Mr. Thacker earlier. Not our cup of tea, but they seem like nice folks. Links to the website in the show notes, of course. Second, we've come a long way in this episode realizing more and more that things we take to be baseline, absolute, and concrete about reality are anything but. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. 